out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Steve Parsons, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. Was in a band called The Sharks. This was very much the early 70s and also a bit of the 90s. He's had a career and life in music. The Sharks also featured Chris Spedding and at one time when they reformed Paul Cook on drums. Recently, there's been a film that has been made about them, not a rock doc, A Shark's Tale, which is absolutely brilliant. So do get a ch- if you get a chance to watch it, do... You will enjoy it, he says so confidently. Anyway, look, you're going to find out more about Steve and his life in music and much more. Anyway, so after several minutes of interest and a casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Steve, it's over to you. Well, for me, it's it's earlier. I mean, I'm 72 now. So for me, the big charge was the American soul music. I mean, Tamla Motown, The Stacks, The Otis Redding. All yes. of that. that was my initial drive, I think. And then, you know, as the decade went on, I got into, you know, The Doors and Led Zeppelin and Free. And, and, and you know, who all kind of had a soulful thing about them without being, you know, soul music. It was different music. It was stretched music. But um, it's as long as it still had a kind of soul intensity, then I was on it. Yes. That was my thing. And did you, at that stage, did you did your parents have any musical influence or impact on your life? Because you were born... No. Only, only in a negative way. I mean, uh, you know, my mother, God bless her, she loved um, Val Dunican and The Bachelors and just dreadful, um, soft, soft pop. Uh, yes. Played in the house. And so... Um, but like many young people, I got a dance set, a record player, and then I could go in my room and I could play the Four Tops and Temptations and Marvin Gaye and be very happy. Yes, because you, but, you but grew it, up... It, it, nothing I, to do with the family. No. Did you grow up in Hull? Was that your birthplace? Not not quite. I'm from Bridlington, which is 30 miles from Hull. Right. Uh, but, but Hull was formative for me because I went to Hull with the well on the outside i went to go to the uh, tech college to finish my education which was very uh, abandoned because of rock music yes but really, i went to hull because it had a fantastic absolutely fantastic vibrant local scene i mean when you mention david bowie i would do dates with mick ronson who would disband the rats uh, yes, we wouldn't see on bass. I was in for a short time in a band with Trevor, the bass player, Trevor Boulder. Yes, a band called Blues Band called Flesh. Um, I was in that with him. Um, Rod Temperton was on that scene, Excellent. the guy that did uh, Thriller uh, and programmed and wrote most of the music. He was playing with a local band called The Hammer. Um, Robert Palmer. Uh, with his band, the Mandrakes, was also on the scene, and we would all do dates together. I mean, and I knew that I would be able to uh, work with better quality musicians in Hull, which is what happened. 
Yes. And did you come across, was it John Cambridge, who was also, I think he was a drummer for a while with um, on that scene, or he had some connection with David Bowie in the yes, early years. Yes, Johnny Cambridge, I think, played with the Rats for a while, perhaps before Woody. Uh, That's Woody, right, because, yes. Because I had played with Woody um, one time when he was 15, and he wanted to audition for a band, and his father brought him in a car. <laughs> he played, and he was good, but we didn't choose him because he was too young and a lot of the places we were playing they wouldn't have a kid that young in no but he was a talented uh drummer then and then he went on to play in the last version of the rats which is basically the spiders from mars without the there was a guy called benny who was their lead singer uh, and harmonica player was fantastic he was also a really fantastic talent but you know, Mick was, I mean, Mick, it was great to play gigs with Mick Ronson because I found out then what a top class lead guitar player should play like and move like. I mean, he, Mick Ronson was like a star when he played in a, a working man's club. Yes. He yeah. had the whole thing ready. So when Bowie took them, there wasn't any... He had the hairstyle, he had the boots, he was, I mean, he looked really classy and he played fantastic. Mick was a, a really terrific guitar player. Yes, absolutely. I think he, David Bowie used to say he was looking for his uh, Jeff Beck. Obviously, Jeff Beck wasn't available, but Mick Ronson was that person that took... Yeah, well, if you can't, if you couldn't get Jeff, I guess Mick was the, I mean, Mick used to play a lot of the Jeff Beck material live. He used to play Beck's Boogie. Which I think he uh, called Mick Ronner's boogie in the end, actually. It was no right. because he made his own variations on it, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, super talented. And Hall was a fantastic cradle in that way because, as I say, in just youth clubs, working men's clubs, ballrooms, fantastic people. And there was another great group called Gospel Garden. Right. Two of the guys later became Methuselah. But Gospel Garden were one of the most polished live acts I've ever seen with a five-part harmony. Uh, to, they didn't write their own material, but they did fantastic arrangements, and they were, yeah, wonderful. So it was, you know, it was a place to go. Hull was, was a hot place to go if you wanted to learn how to be properly in beat groups and rock bands. Yes, an amazing apprenticeship. Did you kind of, kind of, just going back one year to 1967, the Summer of Love, wasn't it? There was, I think in San Francisco, they had the gathering of the tribes with people like Timothy Leary and the Grateful Dead and those characters like that. And um, yes, the guy who did the F song, which I can't, Country Joe and the Fish was there. And then yep. in, in the UK, there was that summer of 67, there was the uh, 60, no, 14 hour Technicolor Dream with yeah, at the Alley Pally with people like Arthur Brown, who was at every ven venue, and also the early Pink Floyd. Did the hippie counterculture come into your consciousness at that stage? Well, obviously, it kind of did for a while, but I, I've got to be honest, I really didn't like it. Um, I found it full of a lot of hot air. Um, and, you know, I saw bands like the Pink Floyd in the early days. And, you know, to me, it was all very, very boring, I have to say. Um, yes. I mean, The Grateful Dead didn't move me. I think I quite liked Quicksilver Messenger Service, which was an uh, American band. And I did love The Doors. 
and I was lucky enough to see the doors um, at uh, the Roundhouse in London, September the 8th, 1968, on a right. double with the Jefferson Airplane. Yes, yeah. <laughs> probably for £3 or something. Was that the one which was, which was filmed and there was that shot That's of yeah, Jim Morrison one. sort of playing with the camera, flirting with it? Yeah, he was, I mean, the guy was unbelievable. I mean, really, really, I look back, you know, I've been going to gigs for a long, long time now, over 50 years. Anything better than that, it's very hard to find in my memory. They <laughs> sounded fantastic. There was an air of edge about it because you never knew what Morrison was going to do, and the band didn't. They never took their eyes off him. <laughs> to the floor, they suddenly went quiet. I mean, it was it was truly engaging. He was played for, and I do think uh, Jim is an underestimated singer. I think he's a fantastic singer. Um, you know, blues, rock, soul, any 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 of that. He could have done anything he wanted, really. Um, so yeah, for me that was a big defining night because I went, oh okay, I see it. That's that's what a top class outfit should be like. Yes, yes, they were they were stunning, absolutely amazing. And yeah, the musicians behind the great singer was um, were awesome as well. So there you go. Uh, so then I've got to, I've got to add one more thing quickly because I've just got into him again after many years, and that's Captain Beefheart. Oh, the good captain. Oh, I we love him. Captain B part. And I, I was lucky to see him uh, in um, Newcastle, 1970. Right. Band, and that was another stunning performance. I mean, it just had it. The musicians were just moving crazily, but playing fantastic, like ricocheting off each other. And B part just right in the middle of it, you know, just not doing much except singing fantastically and playing great harp. I mean, yeah, Captain Beefheart. Yes, did or did they have John John Drumbo French on drums at that stage? Because I remember and uh, Roy Estrada on bass from the Mods of Invention. Yeah, magic. Well, I saw the the Magic Band did a couple of tours, I suppose, in the last ten years, with um, and they were stunning. And John did the vocals on some of it as well. So he had he had you know, and the first time they did that, they had most of the original members. The second time. They had less of the original members of the band, and yeah. then that that was it. But it was still brilliant to see it, and there was still an intensity that you thought they were quite special, really. And um, definitely, definitely. So, very... I mean, again, you know, just to sum up on that, that you know, when the psychedelic thing came along, great. But my tastes in music really didn't change. I still like stuff that was done with real intensity. I don't care for laid back stuff and the James Taylors and the. Crosby, Stills and Nash. I, if I, I like my meat kind of raw. I think. Yes, there you go. They, actually, it's funny because I, I did an interview with John French because they were coming to Norwich. And I, I said, you know, what would you tell your sixteen-year-old self? Because he was a bit traumatized working with Captain Beefheart. He said, Oh, I know. Yeah. He, he said, I wished I'd learned to play drums and worked with uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young instead. <laughs> it was like he would have <laughs> got money. He would have got money and he wouldn't have been so traumatized. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> yes, he, I had never read his book. He said, Do you have you read my book? And it's, it's only available on import, but I should try and get it on eBay one day and um, have a read of what it was like to be in kind of imprisoned with Captain and doing, you know, he was very young at the time, actually, he was really young, something like 17, I think. 
Yeah. Anyway, there you go. It's rock and roll. So then when we got to the 70s, it was a bit strange because we had Brian Jones had died and then Morrison, Hen- uh, Hendrix and Joplin all died in 1970. Did you feel, because you were just at that age where you went, oh, oh, that was a bad, bit of a downer as a decade finishes and another one begins. What was it like for you navigating that period? If you think about it, and I have, you know, that uh, transition point from the 60s to the 70s, it was marked. I mean, you could feel something evaporate, in my in my opinion. Uh, something went out of the atmosphere. Um, you could put it simply, which is by this point, record companies who had not ever really understood what was going on. I mean, they had beat groups, and the beat groups were making singles, and eventually, oh, my God, the Beatles keep doing it, and the Rolling Stones keep doing it. Oh, my God, this is a thing. And then we'll put them on LP records, sort of, and sort of promote them. And oh, yeah. And then they all got the big shock with the psychedelic thing. I mean, there's a great story about the Mods of Invention, which is they kind of pretended to be a hippie group to get signed. Yes. Um, Frank Zappa was smart enough, and he heard, I think, that Reprise Records, Sinatra's label, were looking for a... They needed a hippie band because they were they were everywhere. So Zappa pretended that the Mods of Invention were a hippie band and they got the record deal. Yes. So in other words, the record companies were rolling along and all by the time it gets to 1970, they figured it out. They realize this if we keep promoting certain acts, if we go album orientated, if we you know, go along with FM radio and all of these things that come in. In other words, really the 60s was wild and woolly. And the record companies, by 1970, they've kind of got it figured out. Let's put some money behind this artist. Let's do this. Before that, it was really just potluck. Let's throw this stuff out there and see if the kids like it. Yes. But once they got to be like a machine, and that got worse into the 80s and... You know, nowadays, major labels sign every year. Each one will sign one solo act, male, one solo act, female. You know, I mean, it's it's um, it's it's a science for them now. Yes. Wasn't a science. It was just a crazy mayhem business with a lot of crazy people in it, not just, you know, at the record. I mean, the crazy people at the record companies, there were crazy people at the managements, at the PRs at the magazines that wrote about it. By the time you get to 70, these people are getting taken out of the equation. And it's, let's just sell records, which is kind of what you've had for the last 50 years. And so in my opinion, the most exciting decades was the 50s, mid 50s, when the rockabilly exploded, right up to say 1970. And, you know, Jimmy was there. I mean, the number one album, on the 1st of January, 1970, in the UK and the US, was Led Zeppelin II. Right. Yes. A lot of love. And, and that was just everywhere. I mean, i never forget that. You, you could not go to anywhere ever and not hear a whole lot of love. <laughs> it was just huge. Yes. And, so, and, you know, Led Zeppelin to this day... You know, they rode that big marketplace um, and credit to them because they didn't try and make any commercial records. 
never released a single. Uh, no. But, you know, I've held up through the years and, yeah, God bless them. Yes. But I, it changed. I, 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 you, you could feel it. it became, I would imagine. Yes, I could imagine. And also what I've noticed, I've done a few interviews with people from certain decades in like the 60s and they don't really move to the next decade particularly well. There was people like, was it uh, Joe Boyd who produced the um, early Pink Floyd and then went on to do, yeah, and then did Nick Drake, but he'd also done, um, the, did you say The Incredible String Band, didn't you? And and yeah. Barry Miles, who was in various scenes. But then in the 70s, they kind of disappeared. And I did ask Barry, I said, what happened? He said, we were just tired. We'd been doing it for five years without a break. And then suddenly we just stepped back. And then a new wave of people yeah. Take, yeah. In, take in that kind of void. So I think you get those kind of five-year cycles almost that come come through, which you know, it, sometimes there's quite a different music scene. So what was it like for you sort of going from your scene in Hull to then the next chapter of your life? Well, that's, you know, it kind of ties in because by the time I get invited to join Sharks or what became Sharks, um, the kind of fix was in. And for, for Sharks in particular, uh, the bass player was Andy Fraser who had come out of free and written all right now. So he was a acknowledged talent. Chris Spedding was the up and coming guitar player uh, around at the time uh, with an American drummer who was very, very good. Um, and, you know, myself being, I mean, to be honest, I, well, I know that they had tried to get other singers Better known singers, um, I can name Leo Sayer was asked to join Sharks and Robert Palmer. Right. Both asked to join Sharks and declined. So desperately, like, <laughs> somebody in, so, well, no, it was actually Muff Winwood, who is Steve Winwood's older brother and was the bass player in the Spencer Davis group, uh, was the head of AR at Island. And about six months before Sharks, I was playing a summer gig in London, just a kind of pickup thing with a girl singer, very good, and a very good guitar player. And we had a date at a place called the Troubadour. We played the date, and after the show, Muff Winwood came in and introduced himself. He said, I'm Muff Winwood from Island Records. And he said to me, I don't want to sign this group but you are talented and I will find something for you. Give me your phone number. Right. And I didn't have a phone. No, you don't. Living in Hull. So I just gave him my, uh, I gave him my address. I wrote it down on a piece of paper and forgot about it. Six months later, when he heard sharks were looking for a singer, he said, I know this guy from Hull. And they sent me a telegram. A telegram came under the door, call Muff Winwood on this number. And that was it. So me? I'm in Sharks and we are touted as a super group. We're going to be fantastic and everything is going to be marvelous. Um, a ton of money was put into the band. Not, not my way or anybody else in the band particularly, but in terms of promoting the band, uh, pushing it, uh, you know, we had a shark car. You yes, this shark car. That was... Uh... The thing had a, a Pontiac Le Mans touring car, 
And Chris Blackwell had the bright idea of turning it into a shark car by putting a polystyrene, not, no, it was um, a vinyl fin on the roof, a very, very solid thing, uh, and teeth on the grill and spray painted down the sides. It looked absolutely ridiculous. Um, but that we were sent out to tour in that. So we were promoted as, you know, the, the thing. And to be honest, at the start, we really weren't. There were problems of all sorts, you know, both inside and outside the band. And the first album is an interesting album, um, but did not do what everybody expected it to. And then Andy Fraser left. Uh, <laughs> we crashed the car, by the way, and uh, Andy, he did break his thumb in the uh, car crash. And the car was a write-off. And I remember Andy Fraser said, this is a bad omen. I'm leaving the band. Yes. So <laughs> those were the days. Believe me, people just, you know, bad omens. I mean. Well, yes. So what was, you know, because you had quite a lot of money and, and sort of expectations for that first album, which is First Water. Mm -hmm. Well. I mean, often first albums can be a little bit sort of rusty and then people get into a groove. What was what was the feeling for you when you sort of heard it and thought about the production and the songwriting? Well, I, I mean, the songwriting is was the main point of division in the band, really. Um, but I'll come to that. But the, the sound of the album, actually, I quite like. I mean, it's it's produced by Andy Johns. And it's pretty spaced out, but I quite like it. Um, I'm not happy with my performances on the album, but that's because there was a lot of conflict um, in the studio. The cause of the conflict was very simple. Andy Fraser had left free because really he wanted to properly ramrod a band and play his material in his distinct way. And Andy had a very, very... Uh, a signature way of putting music together. I mean, Free sounded like Free, I think, largely because of Andy Fraser. Mm. Wanted Sharks to sound like that. Um, so we rehearsed his songs exactly the way he wanted them. And he was quite, quite uh, disciplined about it. Then at some point, <laughs> fatally, I think the drummer said to me, or said in front of everybody, don't you write any songs? So I said, well, yeah. And I had, you know, a bunch of really good quality songs. As soon as I play these songs, oh, the atmosphere changes. Spedding's excited and the drummer is excited because they can help me create these songs. Andy was delivering finished, perfected musical arrangements. Yes. My songs being loose, but having some quality, the guys went, oh, hey, and why don't we do this? And why don't we, let's make the guitar solo uh, tone up and et cetera, et cetera. All, you know, this kind of, there was an involvement. But as soon as this happened, Andy went cold. Because I think he'd just been through the same thing with Paul Rogers. Right. And he did not want to go through it again. And so he was very unhappy from that point on. As it turns out, the songs that I wrote on that first album, I think it's four and a half, I think Andy and I wrote 
one together and another four sep uh, separately. Yeah, uh, three or four of those are, are, are excellent. And, and, and you know, sharks still played them live up until a few years back. Yes, my God. So then Andy leaves and then you've got that other exciting. You're on Island Records, which is Chris Blackwell's mm -hmm. Well, Chris label. Blackwell, our manager, nominally. He was the manager of the band, but of course he didn't do anything. Right. These these things do have these very things. Busy. Um, at that time, especially when Andy left, um, really developing the Bob Marley thing. They were recording Bob's album in London and all of the focus was on Bob. I'll never uh, quibble about that because Marley is, in my opinion, one of the most talented guys ever. And Chris Blackwell was quite right to put so much time and energy into it. The problem being, he should have turned around and said, look, guys, I don't have the time to manage you properly. Get someone else to do it. And it right. took him to do that. And in that time, we were more or less rudderless. Yes. Um, another bass player was just in his own way, as good as Andy. I mean, a guy called Buster Cherry Jones from Memphis, Tennessee, um, Afro-American, had played with B.B. King, had played with Ike and Tina Turner, uh, I mean, played with Albert King. Uh, I mean, he knew his way around. He was a really, really strong bass player and a strong stage presence, but a little bit of an anarchic guy. He's, he's, he's passed away about 15, 16 years ago, um, mostly from abuse. Uh, of himself you know, because he was a serial uh, abuser of everything right Jesus crazy use anything that was ever offered to him Buster Cherry Jones there you go but your second yeah. album the, the, the follow up album again it has it has Pete Jenner as the producer doesn't it it's, it's got um, John Lackey as well mixing it so yeah. you, again sort of a big budget behind this production Oh, my God. They were still pouring money to us. And in those days, I mean, a lot of um, Jab It and Your Eye, the second album, is recorded at Abbey Road. I mean, yeah, yeah, they were still pumping the money in. Um, the interesting thing is, again, although the album is not great, it does have some really very, very strong tracks on it, that, that album, um, Sophistication in particular. And... Yeah, I mean, there's cocaine blues, and it, I, there are some very strong songs on it. I wasn't happy with the production, um, but that album was our gateway to a U.S. tour, and that U.S. tour that we got because the album charted somewhere, and we got invited to play with a lot of the big bands of the day, like uh, Mountain, uh, Doobie Brothers. Uh, funnily enough, we ended up supporting uh, Roxy again in, in America, and we'd supported Roxy already on their first uh, UK tour. Oh, right. Had John, was John Porter still with the band at that stage? John Porter joined the band, was in, yeah, he was in the band at that stage. When they did the uh, first tour, I think it was Rick Kenton. Right. So, but Johnny, yes. great guy. I love Johnny. I used to hang with him a lot. Um, yeah, I really liked him. Um, he did some great sort of stuff in the sort of latter part of the 70s with a, a duo called James Lascelles and somebody else. It was a very sort of folky, kind of slightly hippie kind of combo. Only one album. But then he became a sort of a go-to producer in the, the 80s because I know yeah. he did The Smiths and people like that. And he has got great stories about Johnny Marr and 
Morrissey. Yeah. So, um, funnily enough, by the way, Jamie LaSalle, I used to play in the same football team as. Oh, excellent. In 1975, we played together in a football team. Nice. Yes, he's, he's so still doing. Jamie LaSalle is uh, or was head of Virgin for a long time. Oh, that's his brother. So J- James LaSalle plays keyboard and does kind of funky jazz world yeah. music, and his brother, stuff, yeah. he does his other bits and pieces. I know it's kind of an interesting family. I think he's like James is like in line. He's about twenty fifth in line for the the you know King of England. So I think when I knew him, he was about tenth or eleventh. Yes, the pecking order since then. <laughs> Yes, that would be a bit of a surprise, wouldn't it? Yes. And then, so how was America? Because most people who do the American tour come back completely fried and think that's it. I can't do that anymore. I'm going to bed and the band's over. Yeah, well, in some ways, it was a beginning and an end for Sharks. Point was proved. We really, really played well. We really pulled ourselves together and put on a dynamite show. And everybody that played with us was, you know, reluctant to follow us we were hot i mean we were really really hot we got strong reactions it was a i think nearly four months the tour but you're right i mean it had a frying effect and at the end of the tour uh, a guy called frank barcelona who ran the biggest uh, talent agency in the u.s came to the last show as he'd been to the first and he said you guys have it you come back for me in the fall, and we will break you huge. Right. So that was his last word. So, and we're leaving in two days back home. We haven't been back home for four months. We are summoned to a meeting at our, we then had an American management because Blackwell had pulled out. And the guys said, don't go back. This is happening for you. Stay here now. We will find you apartments, we'll get you recording, and then you tour again in about three months. And I went, great. And I looked around at the other four guys, including two Americans, and none of them wanted to stay. They all wanted to go back for various reasons, women, whatever, or... Yes. and it was the most shocking thing that I've ever seen because we'd worked so hard over that two-year period to, you know, kind of live up to the initial expectations of a top-class supergroup that can play to thousands and thousands of people and entertain them. And the fact that they all wanted to go home, and of course, once we got back, I think infighting started and we were broke up and got a new bass player and a drummer and it didn't work and it was over. In yeah. other words, it was over at that meeting when the when the group itself voted not to stay, that was the end. Were you, were you the only one who wanted to stay at that stage? Yep. yep. I didn't have a second thought about it. I'm a funny guy. Um, I'm a kind of slow starter at things. But once I get going... I don't see a stop point and, Mm -hmm. you know, helped me a lot. And because my subsequent career as a music composer and all these things, you need this kind of weird stamina. 
And so for me, that tour, even though it had been kind of brain blasting and physical, I was just ready immediately for more. Yeah, let's go. Okay, straight away. And the fact that the other guys were like, no, I don't think so, and that, 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 I, I found just difficult to understand. Yes. And was it? That's part of my character. It's part of my nature that I, once I really get going and get my teeth, and I'm, I'm kind of the last person there. I'm still. <laughs> You got to have stamina. I know. Well, I, I remember, you know, going back to Bowie. I mean, he took a while to get going because his stuff in the sixties weren't great. But then in the seventies, I think he released one album a year, produced several albums, relocated, did lots of tours, lots of different musicians, and I, I still can't understand how he managed to, and do films. Um, that's quite a lot. But he obviously didn't procrastinate. He just kept going and didn't slow down. Is it true then that Buster stole one of Chris's guitars to f- fly right. home? Yeah, yeah, we we had a uh, we trimmed down. So basically, Spedding was unhappy with the drummer, the American guy Marty Simon. Marty was a excellent kind of drummer, but he did not have that kind of um, precision timing. Things sped up and slowed down. Chris is a, a very much a musical perfectionist about such matters, and it was irritating him. It was a very bad time to change the drummer, um, but that's what we did. So we got another drummer, and we were going to do a big gig at the Rainbow Room. Uh, it was on the top of the Bieber building in, in Kensington. It was a oh, nice. venue. And um, the night before, or the day before, Buster, he'd rehearsed with us for the show and then just left and took the guitar and to pay for his plane ticket and we couldn't do the day my god did you ever see buster again funnily enough i did spedding played with him again um maybe 10 years later in new york and apparently that was quite hairy um but yes i actually funnily enough in the days when i was doing commercials he got in touch with me just as i needed somebody to do a vocal for a tv commercial so i actually hired him as a singer he did a good job for me Nice. That's brilliant. I mean, Chris, just to say, I mean, he does, he has been at this stage appearing on some of the greatest records and biggest seller records of all time. How was, how was his relationship with doing that work as well as being in the band? Did he, I mean, he was. Well, it's, it's fragmented. I mean, you know, he literally gave up sessions for the Sharks. Those two years, he hardly did any at all. Before that, you know, he would get up in the morning, 11 o'clock, it's Shirley Bassey. Um, three in the afternoon, it's a TV jingle. And four o'clock till, till 10, it's Harry Nilsson. That would be Chris Redding's day. I mean, you know, I've seen his diaries. I mean, yes. Just, just amazing. Extraordinary. Um, I mean, extraordinary work. And it was great. because Guitar, will, 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 and he, was, he was charging double scale at the time. Um, it was, uh, but so it, his commitment to Sharks to be a rock and roller meant that he gave that up. As soon as Sharks finishes, um, actually, the only other thing he did, I think, with Sharks was the Brian Eno first album, um, which most of the Sharks are on because Brian was a fan of the band. And um, Spedding did that. But then shortly, you know, as soon as. Uh, um, 
Sharks finish, Chris is back, but with a different type of person then. Then he's playing with Brian Ferry. Then he, because Brian has seen him a lot with the Boxy Music Sharks interface, um, John Cale, who I introduced him to, takes him up as his guitar player. Um, and he played on all those great albums like Slow Dazzle and Helen of Troy. So, you know, that's another phase of spreading session work. And then he has his hit and he's not doing session work. Yes. And when things go down because he hasn't got a follow-up, he goes back to session work. So and then he moved to America and you'll see, I mean, the Chris Spedding website, it's an amazing, it's not the most slickest website around, but in terms of detail about, you know, who he played with and when he played with, just check that website out. Yes, I know from from the Wombles to the early Sex Pistols, it's and it's, it's, honestly, it goes on and on and on. It's quite boggling. It is very. So, is there a moment where you realise when you wake up the next morning the sharks is over? Yeah, I mean, I went, oh my god, it's all over, finish, and um, I was kind of depressed, but I still had a weird energy about it, and. I remember I went to this party and someone said to me, there's a woman in that bedroom and she's doing tarot card readings. And I went, oh, I'll go and have that then. I've never had one. I sat down, she laid the cards out and she said, ah, yeah, you're worried about something, your career is fizzling and you think it's all, don't worry. Within two months, all forgotten. And I went, oh yeah, great. You know, like, I believe you. Um, and of course I didn't, but six weeks later, I get a call from Ginger Baker's management. Um, Ginger would like you to come and audition to sing with his new band, Baker Gervitz Army. So six weeks later, I'm back on the treadmill. Yes. There you go. And how did you find Ginger? Fabulous. I loved him. I mean, have you seen the film? Yes. Everybody. It's... But Okay. That is a ginger baker, but there are a number of other ginger bakers, or there were a number of other ginger bakers. I got on with the man like a dream. I, yes. you know, I joined the band because I wanted to learn a lot about percussion, and I figured you couldn't do better. And that was my intention in the band. I mean, I wanted to kind of improve my singing a little bit in terms of they were very good at doing harmonies, um, the Gerbitz brothers. And I'd never done that kind of tight harmony work before. So that was a nice challenge. But secretly, I was just watching Ginger, how he went about it. I started asking questions about polyrhythms. And as, if, as long as you weren't too arsy about it, he would he would tell you things and he would show you things, which is even more important. Yes. Um, you know, the, the great players, you learn just by playing with them. You don't need to ask any questions. And Ginger is was a great player. There's no yeah. the minute he sat down at the kit, you knew you were in business. You know, music is going to be made. He came with that attitude. And a lot of the irritation that he has that you see in the film and it demonstrated through his life, I think generally towards people who were stopping the party. Ginger looked at it all as an endless party. We would just we will keep playing, we will get paid, and it will all be that will that's what we will do. And the rest of it, he could give a damn about. 
And uh, there was another type of person that saw in Ginger a challenge, a red-headed man with an obvious short temper, so I will provoke him. And usually they got their just desserts, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> yes. So, uh, but my personal relationship with him, just absolutely wonderful, like a, a great tutor to me. And also, I mean, you did those albums, but then also Ginger's solo albums in 77 as well, so 78. That, that was a bit tricky because Ginger was actually, at that point, he set off to do a solo album. He wasn't in any shape to do it. Um, he, he had a heroin problem again at that point. So I took over and helped him through it, and we got through it, but it was not a great album. Yes, tricky. And how did you, because obviously in the background, you know, musical trends are changing. You know, you went from the sort of heavy rock of the early 70s to, you know, obviously more heavy rock throughout, but then there was prog rock. And then there was the, you know, James Taylor's and Fleetwood Mac's, the Eagles. And then you had punk appearing in 76, 77. How was that influencing your kind of creative and musical journey? I, I like the best of punk. You know, I love the Sex Pistols. I mean, I played with two of the guys and I know Steve Jones pretty well. And I just think the Sex Pistols were just a terrific band. The Clash, their best songs, I like. Um, but honestly, I was more interested in the American end, um, which would be the talking heads and the television. Yes. More kind of sonic orientated, uh, style that came out of that. Um, Ramones, what can you say about Ramones? You know, I toured with Ramones. I supported them, um, as a solo act and, uh, Boy, the Ramones, they were just like a machine. I mean, they just did the same thing every night with the same intensity and the same obsessive, you know. I can't, I, I have to say I rate the Ramones, you know. Yes, absolutely. No, I always remember someone saying they were, they played with them and before the, you know, as, you know, waiting to go on, they, they, they played their whole set, you know, in the changing rooms or dressing rooms before going on stage and doing it again, which I thought... Their, their level of prof um, professionalism was quite extraordinary. It's absolutely true. Every night when we came off from our warm-up set, they would be halfway through their demo set in the dressing room. And I figured it out that what it did, it got them to the energy level where they could hit the stage. There was no warm-up. One, two, three, four, boom. Sheena is a punk rocker. Here we go. Boom, boom, boom. And I think it was a matter of... Um, Almost like an athlete would be going through the paces before a race. That's what the Ramones did. So I think it was a very physical aspect to it. And after playing that 40, it was only a 40-minute set, by the way. Yes. No shorter. Everything was just exactly the same, 40 minutes. So after playing that for 40 minutes in the dressing room, they were ready to do it properly. Amazing. And what a band. Then you bring out your first, is this your first solo album, which was produced by the famous Steve Lillywhite, who becomes famous a bit later, but but he's early I, days. No, it's true. And and um, it, I actually had problems uh, getting the record company to agree for Steve Lillywhite. Uh, somebody said to me, this, this kid's great. And he, he had done uh, Eddie and the Hot Rods, had a hit. 
He had done Susie and the Banshees, had a hit, Hong Kong Garden. And I think one other record, he had three hits. And I went down to meet him and we got on very well. Uh, I'm still in contact with Steve. He's in Malaya, I think. Right? Yes. Um, and I go to the record company, I say, it's fantastic. This kid's great, going to make a great record. And they said, yeah, but he's never made an album. <laughs> Look, you can make hit singles. I mean, what's the difference? An album is just 10, 11 tracks. You know, you would want them all to be hit singles in a, in a perfect world. Um, anyway, finally they agreed. Um, and yeah, that was a, you know, it didn't sell, but I enjoyed doing that album and I quite like it. It's never been re released. It was on Jet Records, which was uh, Don Arden's label. Yes. ELO and all of this. Um, yeah. Amazing. And did you then, because there was some really good book that came out um, probably last year, Dorothy Max Pryor, who'd been in various bands like Rima Rima, but then had also known, um, yeah, Adam, Adam of the Ants and also Marco Peroni. Did you, did you start to sort of mix in those circles, circles as well? Yeah, I, produced, at that? I produced a track for Adam. Um, uh, I, I was dating his uh, PR lady, I think, and she said he doesn't know what to do. This was after punk and before the proper hit Adam and the Ants. Yes. So I said, well, I'll go and see him, you know. Um, had a cassette of his demos, which were kind of quirky. Um, and I went to see him at the Electric Ballroom in Camden. And he still drew a reasonable audience, but mostly young females. I mean, you know, there was maybe a hundred young, attractive young women crowded around the front of the stage, following his every move, and the guy didn't have a hit record. And I remember thinking to myself, well, he's got something going on. You know, whatever it is, he's got it. Um, the band at the time was the band that later became Bow Wow Wow. Oh, fantastic. When I've I, done it. And I produced a track called Xerox Machine. And then he fired the band and did it again with different with different people. So I wasn't involved in that. But I was I was happy to help. I gave him some good percussion uh, help because of you know having worked with Ginger and everything. And he was he was very interested in the African drum. Rhythm. Yes, the the so we, famous Burundi drummers. Yeah, right. we we did a bit we did a bit of all that. And nice. Um, Adam was a, yeah, I liked him. I saw him maybe not seven or eight years ago. He was great. Um, and he said to me, come and see me live. And he put me on the guest list and I went to see him. And he was really good. Really very, very good. Yes, absolutely. No, God, that that work he did with Marco. and um... yeah, well, Marco made the difference because when he got Marco, he got somebody who could arrange and put Adam's lovely mad ideas into a, a more sturdy format. Is, is perhaps how, how you could think about it. Had you come across um, Malcolm at this stage, Malcolm McLaren? Had I he... never met Malcolm, never. I mean, Spedding knew him uh, because of the Sex Pistols and, you know, being invited to produce the Pistols demos. Um, I never met Malcolm. No. 
But then when you do your second solo album in the early 80s, do you reconnect with Chris at this stage? Chris produced that album. Yes. Yes. Uh, the That's the La Rocca album. Yes. And um, that's a very good album, I think. And it was re-released about six or seven years ago on Angel Air. And, you know, if I'd had the reviews that I got six months ago, if I'd had them... 40 years back, then the album would have been enormous because, I mean, people loved it. And I, yeah, I'm very proud of La Rock. I think it's a great album. Spedding did some sensational uh, guitar playing on it. And Billy Nelson is on it from um, Bebop Deluxe. And who else do we have? Oh, some, I mean, the, 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 the classic beat group drummer, Clem Catini, from, from the Tornadoes and Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, he plays on the album, and he's just so good. Fantastic. Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. What yeah. a name. What a band. Anyway, and then, did you, how did you get, because you, did you produce or film a video for Men Without Hats? Yes, I did. Yep. Um, I, I did a couple of videos for Cherry Red. I did a band called Eyeless in Gaza. Um, when we did... Men Without Hats, my younger brother was a video editor and I pulled him in and he was really wanted to direct. So I kind of backed off on that job. You know, I let him, I let him go the director's route. Um, so he, he did more of that video than I did. Yes. And did you say Isle of Ling of... Isle of Singaza. Oh, right. Did you, so you got to work with them? Yeah, 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 yeah. We, we did. It's a quirky little video. I think you can still see it on YouTube. Oh, I have to rewatch it. Yes, they're quite an interesting band of the eighties, aren't they? I like them. Very strange. Yes. So then we go into the eighties. The the landscape changes again. You know, seventy nine Thatcher gets in the Falkland War, miners' crisis. You know, nuclear wars on the horizon. It's not looking great, is it? And then, obviously, a new musical world. There was punk, post-punk. There was new romantic stuff coming out, electronic music. Then the indie scene with the Smiths and people like that. How do you then sort of navigate that next period? Well, for me, that's when I left. I mean, um, when La Rocca didn't succeed and the, the lead single, Nine O'Clock, which is an excellent record still. I mean, that's really worth seeing on. And it even has a very good uh, early days video on YouTube. It's a terrific record. And it had everything that you need to get a hit record, which was um, in those days, we Radio One's record of the week you had to be, and we ticked that box. We got the video on, I think, Swap Shop, which was the only place that showed rock videos. We did it. <laughs> The reviews on the single were fantastic. And we didn't chart simply because EMI had not pressed enough records. Oh, no. Manufacturing problem. And then you lose your momentum. So at that point, I figure, you know what? I mean, I, because people, are, you know, by that point, I'm getting towards 30. And people were kind of, you need a hit record. You need a hit record. So I kind of thought, yeah, okay. I'll see if I can make one. That satisfies me. And I thought I did. And everybody else thought I did. And when that failed, I thought, well, there you go. It's time to leave. So I basically backed out of performing and singing at that point. 
Um, I fished around a bit, a bit with uh, record production, talking to people. Songwriting partnerships were offered. I worked with Midjua for a short while. We did right. interesting material together. None of this is, is thrilling me. And then, funnily enough, same door that got me out of the pop rock game got me into another one, which was that early days video that was made for Nine O'Clock was made by a very talented director, young director called Roger Long, who then went on to make a big name for himself in advertising. And I was having lunch with Roger, and I said, I really don't know what to do. He said, come and do music for adverts. adverts. And I said, I don't know how any of that nonsense works. I couldn't write a jingle to save my life. And he said, you've no idea. There's a new world coming. You know, Ridley Scott, Tony Scott, Adrian Lyne. These people are doing the TV commercials. They've got massive budgets. They don't want any corn. They want jazz. They want space music. They want blues. They want really great stuff now. This is the time to get into the business. So I did. And, you know, there goes best part of 26, 27 years. Blimey. But then. A, a music machine. I, I mean, I did ads, you know, weekly here. And then I was going all over the world doing music for ads in the, in the U.S. and France and Germany. Um, and then I started to do a bit of TV, and then I started to do a bit of film work. And by the time we get to the end of the 80s, I am just, you know, literally a music machine. Kind of Hans Zimmer style, really, in a way. Yes. I had a bunch of people that worked with me, regular people. We had a system. We had a way of going about it. We had a way of... Uh... I love deadlines. I mean... This kind of refers back to, you know, what I said earlier about my weird strength that I can find sometimes. And deadlines always got that out of me. Okay, Steve, you've got to do a 60-second commercial for Pirelli tires, and it's got to sound vaguely like Massive Attack, and you've got two days to do it. Bang. I was very, very happy. Yes, absolutely. You get focused, don't you? Get focused with it. I could obsess on it and... You know, when you're doing that type of music, you can obsess over every frame. You can get every little bit right. Um, and even, you know, money was great in those days. And an even bigger payoff, you know, after you'd finished the commercial, two days later, it's on the television. So satisfying. I mean, yes. just no waiting. Almost like the early days of pop music when... You know, the Beatles could record a single and have it out in 10 days. You know, um, there's something very seductive about things moving very quickly for me. I like it very much. And this is yes. when I'm always at my happiest. And then sort of 89, you work with Steve Marriott on his last solo studio a... album, which is um, quite a little epic piece, isn't it? A lot of Steve Marriott fans don't like it um, because it's not the Steve Marriott rhythm and blues sound. Having said that, he did 
and he wanted to go that way. I mean, he, he was, at that point, he was enjoying music like Prince and uh, the B-52s, and that was what he wanted to do. He wanted to, to, to make a kind of cutting-edge album with samples and all of this, and that's what we did. Um, I worked on a terrible film called Food of the Gods Part Two for a US company. And at one point, the music supervisor called me up and he said, Steve, we've got the rights to shake in all over. And we want you to do a version with someone well-known for the end titles of the film. And I went, Steve Marriott, you know, and they had big money. So I just, I got in touch with Steve through someone. And you had to pay Steve in cash because um, he wasn't on the books for the tax people, either in the UK or the US. So Steve could only work for cash. So I said to the film company, he's going to need a, a big whack of cash. And they said, fine, here it is. It's in a brown paper bag. And we cut the track and he was, he was so great. We had a, we said a great laugh. Um, and I mean, I've got to say to you, you know, the, the small faces, 1964, 65, I saw them live um, and they just were so damn cool. They had everything down. They were soul, they were funk, they were, Steve looked brilliant. He looked beautiful and sang like a dream. Yes. So, so after this finishes, I say to the company that got me the job, it was a company called Film Tracks, and they used to get me uh, film, film work. I said, I'd love to do an album with Steve Marriott. And the guy that ran the company was John Hall, who had run Rocket Records for Elton John. Right. Well... How does it work? And I said, well, you've got to give him a big bag of cash. It's just simple. Steve will do it. If you've got a, and he said, I'll get you the bag of cash. So <laughs> they got me another bag of cash. And Steve came. We, we, we put the demos down. Oh, so we put the guide tracks down, basically. And then he went away on tour with Packet of Three. And I worked on the album. And I had the bright idea that I could wind him up. So I did the lead vocals on all of these songs, and I'm a decent singer. I'm not in Marriott's class, but I'm a decent singer. I mm. did a good job. And when he came in and I played him with my guide vocals, I could see the, you know, the little man swelling, like I'm, I'm going to just destroy uh, this, you know, Steve. I'm going to show him what singing is all about. This is what he did. I mean, his vocals on that album are whatever you think about the sound and the way we went about it, the vocals are just outrageous. It's an, it, Steve was an outrageous singer. And again, same as Ginger Baker, same as Chris Spedding, the real deal, the proper thing, no messing around, everything there that you wanted and, and on tap. I think great people have this stuff on tap, you know? Yes, absolutely. Nobody knows. Steve could be just pissing around and one thing or another. The next thing is into a vocal and it's like he's in another world, you know? Ginger was the same. 
Ginger used to go into another world when he was drumming. Sometimes his eyes would roll right up into his head so you don't see the whites. Just gone, you know, in a, whatever it is, communing with spirits and causing things to happen. You know? Amazing, amazing, isn't it? So then did you... At this stage, you did you do some other interesting concepts. There's the experience. You did one something to do with H.P. Lovecraft. Was this uh, uh, an yeah, interest yeah. of yours? Yeah, another personal thing. I've always been interested in Lovecraft's work, and uh, it's fascinating to me because I've lived long enough to see Lovecraft be, uh, turn from a marginal writer, with hardly anybody had ever heard of, into. A classic. I mean, you know, you'll see more Lovecraft books on the shelves than you will Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, he's taken over as the master of cosmic horror. And I've never tired of Lovecraft's work, and his concepts are so wonderful and strange. And, you know, many other people have done their own versions of Lovecraftiana. Um, and we, we, had, um, we had some money. And some help from some people, and we decided to do a, 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 a. It was a pilot for the BBC, is how it started off. They were interested, but I think we, it was a little too weird for them. Yes, interesting, isn't it? Really, um, they... Paul Darrow in it, um, who who had been in Blake Seven. I don't know if you remember, he was Avon. Oh yes, Blake Seven. Yeah, well, Paul was a, you know he was a great, um, slightly over the top, theatre of menace actor, and I like these people. There's a lot of. British actors of a certain ilk from, say, the 70s and the 60s. It's what's called the theatre of menace. The minute they're on screen, you, they're dubious. They're, they're unstable. They, you don't know where they're going to go. You know, um, Kubrick used uh, was it Stone, that guy Stone in, in The Shining. Um, right, yes. He's another one of those. Philip Stone. Another great, um, Donald Pleasance was a great theatre of menace actor. And these people always, I loved it. I loved that style. So to work with Paul was, was great. Um, it was yes. just taken, off as a, uh, taken out as a series, but uh, it was liked by a lot of people. Fantastic. And then in 2011, you, you formed King Mob with, with um, Chris Martin. Well, and So... That whole me being Mr. Music and eventually branching into film as well, that runs out really around 2003, 2004. I'm burnt out with it. Um, and of course, it's hard to leave something that's so successful and lucrative. I mean, I was still enormously successful. Um, but I was burnt out. You know, I knew it. I couldn't do it anymore. I'd done it, you know, for a good shift I'd put in, but I didn't have it. Um, so I kind of pulled out and I didn't really do anything for three, four years. I lived off the money I had and just started a different lifestyle. And started to go, I, lived, I was living in Dalston at the time and I used to go and see a lot of the hipster bands in Dalston. Some of them were very good, mm. but they were all what I called shoegazer bands. Oh, yes. Yes, that they period. Would just stand there and play. And, yeah, you know, as I've explained to you, I'm, I come from a performance music 
uh, stance. And you know, I used to say to people, I could do better than this shit. <laughs> you know, people looked at me. I mean, at this this point, I'm nearly 60. I could do better than this. <laughs> and eventually it cracked. And um I just sat in my Dawson flat for two months and just wrote and wrote and wrote ferociously um, using everything that I had. In other words, the songs on that King Mob album, yes, they're kind of rhythm and blues, but when you listen to them, uh, and as many musicians have discovered, when you try and play them, it's not that simple. And I did lots of interesting things like made sure that all of the instrumental sections were completely different structures from the harmonic template of the song, but then would refer back to it. So you could go out and you could go in. It's, it's, it's a fascinating album in all sorts of ways. And it's certainly the best album I ever made. Um, I called Chris Spedding. I said, I think I've got something. He said, great. He called, first of all, Andy Newmark, who drummed with John Lennon and Sly and the Family Stone, and Guy Pratt, who has played with Roxy and Pink Floyd. So that was our first rhythm section. And we did some tracks with them, which are excellent. Andy didn't want to tour. And Guy Pratt had some dates lined up in Australia that didn't work for us. So Chris got on the phone again, and we got Glenn Matlock from the Pistols and Rich Kids. And we got Martin Chambers from the Pretenders on the drums. And, and the, I mean, the, the album came together so quickly. It's recorded in three days. It's mixed mm. in 10. Um, old style. It's the only album I've ever, rock album I've ever produced. Um, but I went about it with the same techniques that I'd been using successfully in film and TV, which is get this thing done. Okay, guys, we've cut the track. You want to put guitar solos down. You've got an hour, Chris. There you go. Do it. Yes. They loved it, funnily enough. I mean, I, I think they'd got bored with protracted recording and going on and on and re... It, we just went straight at it, you know, without really too much thought or mostly an energetic way of going about the material. And, uh, yeah, I love that album. It has reverted to Chris and myself now, and we are looking for a home for it currently, for a re-release. Because, you know, I, if I had, I mean, you know, if I had to ha hang my hat on one album, it would be Force Nine, King Mob. That was the one. That was the one. And then you, you, because you mentioned earlier about sort of being interested in slightly dark and heavy characters. Charles Manson, was that somebody that has always been a, a fascination for you? I started writing, I was writing for a magazine, an online magazine called Trebuchet which is now just an art, art magazine. But in those days, uh, it was open to all sorts. And I took on, as I, the editor was very keen on my writing. And so I took on various long form things and wrote numbers of articles, one of which is what I call the California death ray, which is the other side of California, not the sunshine palm trees. It's more the David Lynch. Mm. anger, um, underbelly, 
James Elroy style LA, the, the dark LA. And if you're going to do that, you have to do Manson, you know? Yes. And I, to... I, I finished the article and was just about to send it off to the uh, editor and uh, it came on the news that Manson was dead. So I had to re-jig very slightly to make the deadline. Yes. Very odd. I just finished it. I was just about, I switched on the computer. and Okay, let's send that to Sean at Trebuchet and check the BBC News first. And it said, Charles Manson's dead. <laughs> kind of a bit spooky, really, isn't it? When these things happen, it's never... Oh, I mean, it's... it's, it's um... He was one of Neil Young's favourites, you know that. Neil Young likes like Manson's songs. Yes, they were always quite strange. I, I I remember playing them. I always remember Neil had a great story when he talked about Char Charlie. I think he said that, you know, because he had quite a lot of rejection. And I remember Neil Young saying, yeah, Charlie took rejection really badly. I thought, yeah. a bit of an understatement, really. <laughs> <coughs> it's true. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I know. They're quite interesting, aren't they? His his solo acoustic songs. They're quite, you know, just sort of thing you just hear just casually. But I mean, I don't know what I think about Manson's song, right? I've heard it, you know, I've heard the stuff. I don't know. I think I would have thought the same thing like a lot of them did. I would have thought, you know, there's something just wrong about this guy. It seems right when you hear him, but they're, they're like too push. His songs were too pushy somehow, just... For the times, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't. You can't. I've come to the conclusion that you can't judge. You've got to separate art from life to some extent. Most of the people that we admire have what are now considered terrible histories. Picasso was not a very nice man, but am I going to stop enjoying his paintings? No, I'm not. Um, but Ed Manson, to me, I don't know. There wasn't anything there for me, really, I have to say. No, absolutely. Then, actually, did you then do, did sort of make another turn and go into Whole Foods at this stage? Um, not quite, almost. I, I had moved to California. I, I was going to retire in California. That was my big idea. I had friends over there and I stayed for three, four months. I was looking for a place. And then I woke up one morning and went, I can't do this. I mean, I'd always liked California. But I realized that I'd always been coming home from California. When I wasn't going to be coming home from California, I didn't want to be there any longer. Right. So <laughs> I, Tricky. I rang Spedding up, funnily enough, or we were chatting anyway. And he said, I'm doing a all-star album. Cleopatra records, which includes people like Johnny Marr and Brian Ferry and Ian McShane, the actors on it. I mean, he said, but again, I'm, I'm kind of swamped and it's all getting difficult. So I just impulsively said, well, if you put me up, and I knew it had a nice big place because I'd stayed there. I said, if you put me up for a couple of months while I sort myself out, I'll come and help you sort the album out. And that was an album called Joyland. And I wrote a lot of the material on it and 
co-produced it with Chris and we worked very hard on it. It's a good album, I think, very strong, actually. Um, and then I moved into doing superfoods uh, blending, which I discovered in California while I was there. Funnily enough, that was, you know, one of the things that came back. And I, I did that for nearly two years. And I was just about, I was just about to be successful with it. Um, we were getting fantastic reviews. I got a four-page spread in, believe it or not, Women's Health magazine. Nice. Was when you say superfoods, was it things like spirulina and stuff like that? Well, yeah, and maca and lacuma, and I could go on and on. Arcola and acai. I became a bit of an expert in it. Um, and I made really good blends, and we used to make power shakes, and we were doing really quite well. I was doing pop-ups all over the place, and that's when the possibility of a Sharks reunion and a film interrupted it. And so I abruptly stopped and shifted to make what I've spent the last six, seven years on, a Sharks reformation and film of the same. Yes. And that's the the Killers of the Deep. Well, the Killers of the Deep was the, <clears throat> um, the first album that we did, new um in the 21st century and when we did another one called ready set go and we we did also record a live album which is now ready for release at that time um but i set off to make this film not a rock dog and well it wasn't called not a rock dog then it was just let's make a film um many many hours of stuff was filmed and i think over Three, four hundred hours of material had to be gone through during the pandemic with my uh, film partner, Anka Troyan, and became my co director. She's a top class editor here in Germany. And we spent long, long time <laughs> sorting this material into what I think is an extremely strong film. And we have had strong reviews but it is not a rock doc it's an emotional kind of journey about two guys coming to the end of a certain and 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 because of that about a certain era coming to an end that era we started talking about yes the, the lanky skinny kids from the 60s that conquered the world you know mm -hmm. um everybody knows how it began right in the end, I think I've ended up making a film about how it ends. Yes, and it's it's because I I sort of watched it and it's 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 amazingly beautiful and and um, yes, you're right. It is kind of an interesting story with two two central characters. But there's a lovely and quite emotional bit with Chris, isn't there? Talking about his childhood and his his kind of being adopted, his parents, his father, you know, dying and then finding. Actually, they weren't your parents. You actually have got other parents over here. It's it's quite an intriguing story, isn't it? Well, credit Jordan for that. I mean, Jordan Mooney, who, if people don't know, Jordan was, uh, well, she was Vivian Westwood's muse. She worked in the sex shop in the early days when they were on the King's Road. She's on a lot of the Pistols videos. Jordan was a real, you know, she passed away recently, but she's a real, was a real ahead of the curve person and dynamic and i knew i wanted to get stuff out of chris spedding and he's a notoriously difficult interview 
He's got many, many blocks and techniques. I've seen him do it over the years. I know how good he is at blocking interviewers. Um, he's not an open guy in that way. And Jordan, she managed to prize him open. And I think we got some real, it's gold, that material. Um, and again, not the sort of stuff you would find generally in a film about rock people. Um, no, but it kind of also answers a lot of on screen. Answers a lot of kind of points, doesn't it? And he, and also, I mean, he's such an amazing guitarist, isn't he? That is, I guess, so. the Not sounds that, that he creates is is you can tell that there's something quite unique about Chris. The other interesting thing, and I mean, you know, obviously. One of the other reasons the film is not a rock doc is you probably notice no one ever talks about music. We never say anything about it at all. There's nothing about techniques or, you know. But one of the things that's masked by that is that Chris Bedding in the film, you've seen produce a great variety of guitar sounds without any pedals. The man just uses a guitar and an amplifier. That's it. The rest of it comes from guitar playing, not from a, a pod or device to enhance the sound. He takes great pride in he will actually do it, which, you know, that's an amazing thing. Yes. And were you both as committed to the project or was it mostly you had the baton and he and he oh, wanted? No, Chris is the executive producer, but he didn't do anything. Um, we... we didn't send him anything until it was finished. Nothing. And we sent him the thing with some trepidation, you know, will he like it? Will he what? You know. And he just he got back and he said, Yeah, um, you didn't put my doctor's note gag in. And he'd done this on-screen gag where he introduces himself as I'm Chris Spedding, and I've bought a doctor's note. And the doctors know, when you looked at it, it said, you know, even though he's had a heart bypass, he's fit for work and can tour. You know, it's this kind of thing that, that Chris had to show people like Brian Ferry and War of the Worlds when he goes on tour, a guy of his age. He's got to show that he's medically fit. So he did this, which was quite funny, but it was long-winded and it never fitted. And that was his only comment that we left that off. You know, uh, yes. And I think he wanted the word fin at the end, which is a typical Chris Bedding gag because sharks fin and fin being the old art, art school movie ending French film, you put fin on the end, F-I-N. So that's what we did. Yes. And he, that's all he's ever said about it. <laughs> opinion, I think he really likes it. I mean, he came to the premiere and he was very, very good mood. He'd seen it before on a screener, but you know it's different when you see it on the on a big screen and with an audience. I think he gets a kick out of it. Oh my God, absolutely! I mean, it's one thing I have noticed, especially doing this show, is that a lot of stuff that we took for granted back then, without getting into rose-tinted sunglasses, but you suddenly realise how special it was, and it's nice to revisit it and sometimes play things or tracks that you missed the first time you know yeah. b-sides and you think actually there was some really good stuff and just hearing it slightly with just older ears 
you can really really evaluate something culturally i've just noticed that there is a lot of films being made a lot of people write in their memoirs and it's almost like well if it does if it, if it doesn't get done now it's just going to end in landfill and that's such a shame because all yeah. these bands need to have their chapter and to be documented and archived so and and um yes it's it's great that you've made this film and uh because well, you was, talk a, you talk a lot about the money and the lack of money in the film, don't you? Well, we, I mean, we started with a German film company, and a German young German film director was very talented, and his life fell apart in the first months. He filmed a little bit, and then I don't know. His father died. He, he had a divorce. He, he couldn't do it. I mean, he backed out. And then the production company backed out. So we've started making a film and told everybody we're making a film. And now we don't have any backing. So it was always grab money. And, and you know, we sold merch, to pay cameramen and all kinds of things. I mean, we just, you know, it became, let's get it. And, you know, as I said to you, I'm a stubborn person. Once I start on something, I like to get to the other end of it. Yes. And, so, you know, beg, borrow, steal, hooker by crook, we managed to get the film done. And it's good that um, within that, you've got these beautiful live shots of uh, the band developing and playing and sort of going through a tour of, of the UK. When was that filmed? Well, the whole thing is, is it was two and a half years of film. I think we started 2016, beginning one seven and then finished band finished middle of 2018 so two and a half years were filmed not all the time obviously but um uh, you know almost every move the band made was 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 shot on film one way or another and what was the what's the sort of next chapter of the band now that we've got into the the following decade I think, I mean, that's the end of Sharks. I mean, Sharks will not. I've retired from performing, um, basically because I don't think I could do any more. I mean, up until 2018, end of Sharks, I was still capable of doing a high-energy rock show with everything that that entails, and, you know, four or five nights a week, and I could do it. I yes, could, I could summon that, whatever it is to do it. I don't think so now. So, do you know what most older musician performers do is step back a little bit, take the load off, let other people do the work. Um, I mean, God bless Mick Jagger. I don't, I don't, I don't include Mick Jagger in this. The man is, uh, you know, at his <laughs> age to keep turning it out. It's. Uh, it's a high quality thing, but I don't think I could do it. So why be less good than I was? Yes. You know? And did it feel nice? Because obviously you and Chris have, you know, go back 50 years. Did that feel like a, a nice way to bookmark an amazing relationship? I think it's very strong. Um, I think he thinks so too. And the people who watch the movie do that. I mean, we invited Johnny Marr to the film. And Johnny wanted to come, but he he was um, he was in the states. I think 
we showed on the 28th of October and he didn't get back till the 29th. And he said, I'm really sorry because I really would like to see it. And I'm going to send Johnny a screener because I think he will really, I mean, if you compare his relationship with Morrissey, which has just been, you know, whatever, 30 odd years of rank unpleasantness. Mm-hmm. He's taken every single opportunity to diss Johnny and this and that and the other. And I mean, you know, absolutely horrible. You know, I would imagine that Johnny would look at the way Chris and I came to a dignified end and would think, yeah, you know, why not? Why? What's the point in all of that nonsense? When you've played with people and done terrific work, I never understand this, you know, and it's, it's not just Morrissey and Ma, but it's, there are many other bands, some of whom I know and some I don't. Same things go on. Yes, the great partnership. This is getting brought up, you know, I mean, why bother? I, t- I tell you, I did see something very harmonious recently. I saw in, uh, well, it was in the song, uh, Paul, Paul Cook from the Pistols uh, was here with his Generation Sex Band. Oh, yes. So that was Paul and Steve from the Pistols and Tony James and Billy Idol from Generation X. And they did a show which was one Sex Pistols number, one Generation X number, and that was it. And it was great. Played in an outdoor place here in Berlin. Absolutely terrific. Everybody enjoyed it. They enjoyed it. You could tell they were enjoying playing the material. There's no reason for this, you know, lurking. No. This is this is all very true. Yes, actually, you and Chris managed to sort of navigate that kind of intense relationship really well, actually, haven't you? Well, we've stayed, you know, I mean, all, all through those years, even when we weren't directly playing with each other, there was still lots of interface. We would write together. We would get together for writing sessions. When I was, let me see, 1998, 99, when I was living and working in LA, he was living and working. He was 10 minutes down the road from me in the car. Um, but we did a lot of work then. I hired him when I was a film and TV composer. He played a lot of my TV and film and advertising work. Yeah. Um, some things stick and they pay off and they pay off, you know, musically, sometimes financially. And personally, yes. you know. And with the film, is it going to be available as a streaming well, download? We got, it was a surprise to be invited onto that festival and a, and a bit early for us. We weren't quite ready. In fact, we didn't have the film finished when we accepted it. But they, they heard about it through some people here in Germany and wanted us to have us on the thing. What that's done is given us a platform. In other words, it's a real film. We've had a real premiere in the real acknowledged film festival. Yes. Um, we have garnered some good reviews and there are more on the way. I know that. Um, and with some solid quotes. And, you know, basically in the terms of, of, of that, you're talking about, which is broadcast and streaming, unfortunately, we're way down the pile. Why would anybody be, if I'm a TV or a streaming person, why am I interested in a film about a band that nobody's ever heard of? Even though that's kind of the point of the film. Um, so we're assembling as strong a package as we can. 
and we will be in some more European film festivals early 24, and they are the ones that are geared more towards sales. So we will try and get a sales agent or a distributor or various in-territory deals for the film to either be on national TV or streaming platforms. Yes, well, God, that would be brilliant. I mean, you are, it is quite a good time because there was, like I mentioned earlier, there's one on this band called Rima Rima the, that only lasted for 18 months and put out one EP and someone even made a film about it. And then there was the New Town Neurotics has also got a film out as well. So there's a lot of, you know, films from bands. What you have to hope is that the people who are the gatekeepers because I think we have a strong film. In other words, it's not it's not reliant on whether you like sharks or not. Even if you didn't actually particularly, you know, care one way or the other about sharks, I still think you would find the film, a viewer would find the film entertaining. So you have to hope that the quality of a film itself overrides the fact that, oh, it's a music documentary about a band that didn't succeed, you know. Um, and we will find out over the next six months or so, you know, what we can do um, and where we can go with it. Yes. Well, good luck. I'm I'm so pleased that um, these things happen and exist and um, it's all good. I mean, if you were to, if you could have uh, kind of whispered something to your 16-year-old self starting out in this interesting period and path and you know, profession, is there anything in particular you might have just whispered to them, even if they ignored you? You mean my younger self? Yes, if you could have told so, someone with the, the, with all the experience and um, life that you've had since since you know fifty plus years. Well, I, you know, it's something I would have maybe been better to know at sixteen, but I did learn it, which is when something is very attractive artistically, you must throw everything that you've got at it. Don't just go, oh, yeah, it's a matter of fact, you know. Oh, this door, oh, yeah, it's fine. A nice door's open for me. I'll, I'll step inside. No. Get right in straight away and get to work. <laughs> That's what I would advise my 16-year-olds. Don't breeze in. Don't think that opportunities last forever because they don't. Yes. They open. And if you're in the right frame of mind to step inside properly and have something to offer, you know, not just get stuff out of it. If you think, well, I can put something in here, then seize the day. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I go because it's it's ten thirty my time. Oh yeah, my God, yes. Well, thank you ever so much for this, and if you and uh, really appreciate it, and love, I mean, I love the film. Um, I can always send you a link, and then you could always use it on any of your different Please. platforms. We'll add this to, if you if you send us the link to the thing, we will add it to all of our uh, our social media person will be enormously delighted. Yes, well, look, thank you ever so much, and I'll let you go to bed. But yes, thanks again. And, uh, very quickly, it's not a matter of going to bed. I'm going out dancing in an hour. Good. Monday night is my uh, club night. I go to a techno club, the Kit Kat Club in here in Berlin. Oh, Kit Kat Club. Because I've done a few interviews with people in Berlin who are really into the techno world. And I've heard of the, the Kit Kat 
Kit Kat Club. Because there was a guy from Manchester who was big in techno called something Michael Mark Reader, who ran a label but seems to be a major player in Berlin. But also another few people who have been, yes, talked about the Kit Kat Club. I just bumped into locally in a coffee bar. I bumped into a guy who runs some Monday nights, Electric Mondays. And he said to me, you know, you should come. And I was like, look, I'm an old guy. I'm not going to come to a techno rave party with people, you know, young enough to be my grandchildren. And he said, you might be surprised. And uh, that was 18 months ago. And I hit the place most Monday nights. Got to be done. I've got to go and and stretch my legs, as they say. Yes. just Listen, it's been a real pleasure. Yes. Well, thank you. And have a great night. Oh, you're still there. No, I'm still here. Yes, I said no. Have a great night and I'll say goodbye and um, keep on rocking. All right. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you. That, dear listener, is so rock and roll. What a finish. What an ending. I love to keep it in because it always sounds quite sort of... Well, fumbly, that's the only word that I can think of. But anyway, look, a massive thank you to Steve Parsons for giving me the time for that interview. A massive thank you. Member of the Sharks, and um, as I said at the beginning and probably during that fascinating interview, there's a film about the band, so do get a chance to see it. Worth seeing Chris Spedding as well. This has been the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these fascinating interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Just check them out. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.